0: Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is Season 6, Episode 12. Today I'm talking to author Jonathan Coppen, who wrote the book Hippie Food. I was so happy to be able to talk with Jonathan. I've read his work in numerous publications, not the least of which are many of the San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle weeklies I've read. You've seen his work in Lucky Peach, Eating Well, Men's Health, and other publications. His book Hippie Food really got my attention with the various historical topics that came up in the work. His book looks at the way the 60s health movement changed the way we eat today. I'm going to now go right to my conversation with Jonathan Kaufman, author of Hippie Food. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. My name is Dean Jones. I'm your host. Today, my guest on the program is Jonathan Kaufman. He's award-winning writer and editor based in Portland, Oregon. He is the author of Hippie Food, history of brown rice, tofu, whole wheat bread, and granola in America, as well as a Place as a Gift newsletter about cooking in the neighborhood. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really um, enjoyed getting a chance to read Hippie Food. Um, It was just as a history and food nerd and somebody who kind of lived through some of it, it was just really exciting for me. And I imagine it was really exciting to um, write. I also you know, read some of your work online and in print as well. Uh, so I really am happy to have you on the program. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you. Yeah. Now, in my research, I saw that you were described as you were a, um, from a lentil-loving Mennonite family in northern Indiana from the 70s. Can we talk about your youth growing up in Indiana and how it influenced your later career? Sure.
1: Yeah, my parents were, so I grew up Mennonite, my parents. Um, my family has been Mennonite for generations, um, and and we there are two main cultural centers for Mennonite uh, culture um, and sort of organizations in America, and one is in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and the second is in Elkhart County, Indiana. And My parents moved there to go to uh, what is now sort of the um, probably the most liberal uh, intellectually minded of the Mennonite colleges and, and stayed in the area. and and so I, I grew up uh, immersed in Mennonite world, um, but my parents were also on the the sort of the far uh, progressive end of the spectrum. And so, you know, they 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 came of age in the '60s and '70s. And so, the you know there were there were a, a lot of people I grew up with were involved in political movements, especially the peace movement. Um, we, my my family, um, my parents' generation had ditched the covering and a lot of the much more conservative uh, beliefs of of their parents' generation, especially growing up in rural areas. And so uh, it, it was, it, you know, there were there were a lot of elements of Mennonite culture that were that were sustained: um, uh, focus on community, focus on uh, peace and and nonviolence, um, a focus on uh, community service. Um, but some of the other external trappings and this sort of isolation, the c- cultural isolation uh, they had really abandoned. So in in some ways what that what that did is as my career sort of you know progressed on was was left me this with this enduring uh, sense that you know both the, the world was bigger than anything I'd ever grown up with, um, but also that, Uh, writing, writing performs, writing can perform a service writing can, can, uh, can be of service to the community and, and not just, you know, sort of the community of food lovers, but the, the broader community that, that can sort of delve deeper beyond, uh, kind of received ideas of, of what, a a, you know, a restaurant should be.
0: That sounds wonderful. Um, now were the, you, you mentioned all the political things too. Was there kind of a health food focus in Mennonite culture as well?
1: So there, I wouldn't call it health food so much, but the, in 1976, there was this book called um, uh, More With Less that came out. And it was, uh, it was definitely inspired, and, you know, very openly inspired by Francis Morlapé's Diet for a Small Planet. And, yeah. but, it, but what it did was it sort of shifted into a Mennonite context. Um, and so many of the recipes were put contributed by people who had done relief work um, around the world, and so there were there were real there was this, a real uh, global focus of the recipes. But they were all also um, really focused around this idea that that um, faith should should involve stewardship of the earth, and so we had to use the the earth's resources more lightly, and that meant also adopting a lot of these whole, you know, raw foods and, you know, uh, not raw foods, but whole foods and, and what were health foods that were circulating around the counterculture. So it was these sort of brown, earthy recipes with a lot of
0: international flavors. It was a weird time back in the 70s, because I remember, like, for one minute, we were all sitting eating, almost everything was synthetic, it was tang, uh, something called space food sticks I remember eating. They were... I don't even know what the hell it was and uh just a lot of stuff that was very prefab and then overnight it seems like we're eating granola sprouts plain yogurt it was insane yeah
1: i think yeah you know people kids today have no kids today have <laughs> no idea what a radical shift this was and how how sort of foreign it was to mainstream culture but also you know um it, just sort of how much was being worked out in that period about what you know if we're going to eat a certain way how should we eat um i i swear i remember my mother getting rid of the Velveeta from our from our fridge and she cannot remember that moment but i mean i i it, I, it must have happened around when diet for a small planet and
0: um and uh, more with less came out i remember uh, my mom read the sugar blues and that was the sign of doom <laughs> in our household <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, we weren't allowed. uh, Yeah, after a certain point, we weren't allowed sugared cereals, but we were allowed honey. And so we would have Cheerios and like, I would dump on as much honey as that I could manage before my mom turned around and looked at me. So we found ways around it.
0: Now you were cooking for a few years in kitchens as a line cook in Minnesota and San Francisco. Can we talk about that and some of the places you worked?
1: Yeah. So when I, um, I had no thought of cooking. In fact, I was kind of a picky eater, but then I went to Belgium as an exchange student and and uh, right before college and kind of discovered a whole world of food I had no idea existed. And then uh, when I was a freshman in college, some of my friends started working at this restaurant called Table of Contents in St. Paul um, that was in a bookstore next to the college. And they were doing, you know, really progressive stuff with now, I mean, it's like with, um, balsamic vinegar and with sheep's milk cheese and making their own sausage and things that now are sort of like ha 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 but but then we're kind of revolutionary and uh, they needed a dishwasher one day and I decided to be a dishwasher for a while and then I became a prep cook there Um, and then I uh, moved out to San Francisco and after college and decided you know I I tempted for a while and decided you know I really want to learn how to cook and so I started cooking in, in restaurants and um, cooked for a few years. Um, restaurants that are sort of like um, higher end bistros doing some more creative fare, um, sort of California French food. And then uh, decided that I didn't want my entire life to um, circle around a restaurant. I, didn't, I, wanted to have, I wanted to have a bigger life uh, than, than working 60 to 80 hours a week uh, in the kitchen.
0: Now, as a veteran of the kitchen who's worked at different stations there, did you read uh, Kitchen Confidential by Bourdain, and was it relatory to you, or did you feel like it was, you'd been there too, like a veteran wrote about it as well?
1: Uh, it, it was funny, like, I, so I remember even before Kitchen Confidential came out, I was cooking when his first essay came out in The New Yorker, and so I, I subscribed to The New Yorker. And, you know, in my head, while we were working, I was like, I don't feel like anybody's ever captured this kind of chaotic energy of, of the kitchen and my, you know, I'd sort of play around with ideas of how I would write that and his essay came out and I was like, oh, it, everything was there. And it was so much, he was so much better than I could have even imagined writing. So, so yeah, I was, uh, I was a big fan of Bourdain.
0: Now you ultimately left the kitchen and became a journalist and you were able to review restaurants for 11 years in the Bay Area in Seattle. For the East Bay Express, Seattle Weekly, SF Weekly, as well, you wrote about food trends and profiled chefs. What was that period like for you?
1: Uh, I think you know, I, th- I think it's it, it, you know, kids of today. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's important to like put the alt weeklies that I was working in in context because I think they they really don't exist beyond the, maybe the LA Weekly and. Uh, a few other papers that are down to a few slim pages they're they're not what they were in the 80s and 90s um yeah the alt weeklies were this these free alt weeklies were a force they were they were fat newspapers that you would pick up on the street and because there wasn't in the internet you know that's where you would go to look for listings for um cultural criticism for um you know advertisements for you know rock and roll shows um and, and so they, uh, they really invested a lot in food coverage. Um, but the, the food coverage that we did in the alt-weeklies was slightly different from the daily newspapers in, that, in, in two ways. And one was that it was really focused on um, eat both uh, look, talking about the tiny restaurants and the expensive restaurants on the same, in the same terms um, partly because we just didn't have the budgets of the of the big newspapers, but partly it was it was a, it was an aesthetic, it was an it was a intellectual, uh, you know, almost an ethical choice. Um, so we covered sort of all those little restaurants, but then also we focused on voice. Um, the 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 reporting for alt weeklies was rigorous, but it was also it, it was um, it was very it was very focused on the, on the tone, the voice, the color of the writing. Um, Whereas at the time, daily newspapers were much more focused on objectivity. And so it was such a pleasure to learn to write um, and to be a journalist and to be a restaurant critic um, for the alt-weeklies because I had complete uh, creative freedom. Um, and, and so I, uh, I, I, you know, I, I sort of observed, uh, uh, anonymity, I, you know, but, uh, in the same way that the, the higher, the sort of the newspaper daily newspaper critics did, but, but I could focus on like, uh, a taco truck one, one day and on, uh, you know, a five course tasting menu, the next. Um, and, and I, I loved that juxtaposition and I loved what, talking about both of those restaurants those kinds of restaurants uh, in the same tone said about the broader city I felt like I was writing instead of just for writing for the rich people I was writing for everybody and the way that all of my friends were eating
0: well it's really true because you know when I moved to the bay area in the 90s um, I had left San Diego whose weeklies were pretty phenomenal and then I came to the uh, bay area and it was even better there was all these different weeklies we could read and they were so very essential to us and you're right. I mean, we, the food writing in there among other types of writing was just phenomenal. And it really tipped onto the culture of food here. And it it gave you a lot of info about like, you were able to find out, you know the pulse of food in the Bay area. And it was so essential. And the food writers were like rock stars. It was so cool to get to read different things. I mean, I don't, like you said I don't think people really get it like who, who now get everything on the internet. It was all we had really. Yeah.
1: And, and and because those those um, those publications were all uh, you know supported by ads they were free publications when print ads you know died away especially the classifieds it just uh, you know the, the, the all
0: week collapsed yeah I, I remember that time I was working in a newspaper at the time and it was everything kind of turned really quickly <laughs> yes, <it
1: did. laughs> yeah I feel like in between the time i was you know 30 and started and and when i was 40 um probably at least half if not uh two-thirds of the staff jobs disappeared in food writing
0: i remember like one week it seemed everybody was jolly and happy and then the next week all the suits are frowning and everybody was saying no more parties no more this or that (laughs) yeah (laughs) your first your first book as we mentioned is hippie food how back to the landers long hairs and revolutionaries changed the way we eat this was published in 2018 i read this before i ever talked to you and just i really loved it um i got it as when i saw it available in the library i just snatched it up immediately because this this looks really great and i wasn't disappointed it's it's just it's jam-packed i mean it's like one of this if you were to visualize an overus stuff's trunk or suitcase stuff to the gills and like brimming with stuff it's like that it's got so much in there it's just uh amazing because as a history lover and a food lover it's just it's got everything you could possibly want uh where did the impetus to write this come from for you
1: it uh it took it took several different forms it sort of marinated for about five years before i really decided uh, i was going to actually go for it um so the, you know, the one of the moments that sort of were crystallized that there was there was something there I needed to investigate was when I was doing a restaurant review um, of a in Seattle, um, of a vegetarian restaurant that had been around since the 1970s. And I went with a couple of my friends who were the same age. And, you know, I was like, oh, I'm gonna do this because I don't know, it'll be fun, whatever. They I think they have, you know, some nut loaves and and stuff. And I I haven't, haven't really covered them. And I went and all three of us at the table. Had this like moment of deep uh, recognition and nostalgia at this sort, you know, these like chunky vegetables that were steamed and covered in lemon tahini sauce and soy burgers, and and it was like, and, and all of a sudden I started thinking, well, this is this is food that I have been around all my life, and I have no idea where it came from. Let alone why you know Mennonites in a in a small city in Indiana were cooking this food, and so I thought you know and also this food is disappearing. So my I was first trying to like at least just do some kind of um, character profiles of the people of these restaurants that were still around and this cuisine that was disappearing that was so formative for me, and then I, I started thinking well actually you know. I I need to do some sort of like culinary etymology of it. I'm curious about where it came from uh, and also how it got to Indiana. And and so that's when I started, that's when I thought, oh, I think there's a book here. Um, And it wasn't until I had left restaurant reviewing and uh, I I had a little more time on my hands that I decided to start researching it. And then it took about two years to even kind of come up with a proposal um, and uh, because the two things I wanted in, I wanted to co- figure out where all of these different foods in my youth were, came from. And two, I knew that this was such a, this was such a period where people were living in such, you know, creative, untraditional kooky ways. And I knew that there were a bajillion stories out there. And I wanted to capture the flavor of the time through the stories of the people who were involved in this movement.
0: Now. I'm going to ask this question and it may seem like a no-brainer, but I purposely asked this because of the content in the book, because I thought it was so well-written. So um, for our listeners who are not familiar with the term, can you tell us what a hippie is and where did the term come from?
1: Well, I what I had no idea when I started researching this book was how controversial it still was um, for baby boomers. So hippies, you know, we, we sort of, I think there's this there's this sort of loose uh, idea of what a hippie is. that's filtered out into you know the pop culture of the 2020s, and it's a you know long-haired uh, baby boomers, you know, in who who are all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and had their flared bell-bottom jeans and their you know the greasy hair and the psychedelic um, shirts and you know peace, love, you know whatever. Uh, so, but the, I grew up with, you know, folks who had bell-bottom jeans and long hair, but they were all involved in social justice movements and, you know, food was very, something they were taking very seriously. And, and as I did this research and I talked to so many baby boomers of that time, uh, you know, I would use the word hippie because that's what my generation, Generation X, used to sort of describe this food, hippie food. And, and they would like, oh, hold on, I wasn't a hippie. Um, because hippie in that time was so stigmatized in the same way that I think hipster was, uh, you know, yeah. last decade, yeah. it was this sort of like this pejorative and and the phrase that they, you know, it was dirty hippie, right? And so there were these this unwashed, libidinous, ma- you know, masses of kids who were going to, you know, bring down society, um, and so all of these kids were like, oh, I'm not a hippie, I'm 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 part of the counterculture.
0: Now you write about a group in the book that I really enjoyed reading about, and that's a local kind of group, uh, the Diggers. Can you talk about them a bit?
1: Yeah, I, I fell in love with the Diggers. Um, well, <laughs> many groups I fell in love with while, while researching this book, but the Diggers. Uh, so, so you know, we talk about the Summer of Love um, in San Francisco in 1967, and part, and so that term uh, was sort of popularized by Timothy Leary. The summer before, um, and sort of was he sort of blithely invited all of the teenagers of the world to you know to come to the, to San Francisco and tune in, turn on, drop out. Uh, but but the, the upper hate district um, of San Francisco had for about three four years before that had sort of developed this this more organically this tiny uh, scene that grew out of out uh, of grew out of control that was like you know folks that who kind of created the aesthetic. Um, did were doing massive amounts of psychedelics um, and living communally um, sort of living as cheaply as possible um, and and the diggers so the diggers came out of a, a, a political theater group the San Francisco meme troupe and they were doing political theater and then realized partly because of this sort of being part of the psychedelic culture that that um, that 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 there, there there was something beyond you know the, beyond politics, right that something was happening. and there were these massive shifts in consciousness that people in the hate were having um, because of the drugs they were doing. but the, the, this idea that you know, um, you had to break away from from the social structures and the ideas of the past. and so they could use theater to kind of help people have these realizations. So they started passing along tracks and they started, uh, you know, they invented the phrase, today is the first day of your life, which now is like a cliche, but then was sort of something like, oh, you know, this, this idea. Um, and so they, they were really committed to the idea of, of, it was sort of an anarchist, it was anarchist principles, they they didn't have a leader, they had a few sort of folks who were kind of coming up with the ideology, but they, they were really interested in the idea of free. So they had a, a free store where they set up a store where they just, it was like anybody could do, like little three libraries. You could Anybody could drop off goods and you could come in and pick up anything you wanted. Um, they had, uh, they started serving food in, Golden, in the Panhandle, Golden Gate Park, um, free food. And uh, you would have to, uh, it, was, it was really designed to make sure they were feeding all of these kids who were flooding into the hate for the summer love, finding places for them. To sleep and eat, and so they started cooking stew and serving in the park. And they went, they had this giant uh, empty rectangle that they they called the free frame of reference. And so, in order to you know, if you could show up with a bowl and a spoon, and it, but in order to get to the stew, you had to walk through the free frame of reference to realize that you that everything was free. So, you know. So um, they, were, they, were, they were both, uh, they would sort of criticize the, 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 the consumerist aspects of the hip culture that was happening, but they would also sort of do all of this like uh, impromptu anarchic social work um, to support this, this community as this hate, this counterculture community that was, was developing. And now then they eventually faded out.
0: Do they have, I, I love reading about the digger bread and coffee cans.
1: Right, so that's right. And so, um, so as, after they started cooking uh, a stew, then somebody showed up and said, hey, I, I want to teach you all how to make um, bread. So we should add bread with the stew. And so uh, this engineer from somewhere you know, down in, uh, on the peninsula showed up and he, he brought all of these coffee cans and taught them how to make uh, whole wheat bread because like nobody people weren't really talking that much about whole wheat bread but it was if it was going to be bread it was going to be good healthy bread so they started um, they 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 found a kitchen in the basement of uh, of a church that was willing to let them bake bread and so they would bake these you know cylindrical loaves of whole wheat bread in coffee coffee tins and then bring them to the park to slice and hand out as well
0: this episode of the well-seasoned librarian podcast is sponsored by the culinary historians of northern california a bay area educational group dedicated to the study of food drink and culture and human history to learn more about this organization and their work please visit the website at www.chnorcal.org now um You wrote about something else you touched on, and I really was interested in it because it's a term I hear all the time. Even nowadays we hear it, but I don't think anybody really knows what the hell it means. And it was really gratifying to see you write about it was macrobiotics. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about (laughs) that a little bit?
1: Yeah, and in fact, so I, you know, I'd heard sort of vaguely the term macrobiotics before I started doing my research, but as I was working on the book proposal, uh, I decided that I would first start looking at... um, brown rice and so I went and talked to some 80 year old rice growers in California and you know about how they got started farming organically and selling brown rice and and they said basically well we couldn't have done it without the macrobiotics and I was like, there, there was a macrobiotic community. So, macrobiotics, um, uh, I got fascinated with. And, and it was this movement that was founded by a man named uh, George Osawa, a Japanese man who um, he kind of he participated in this health food movement in Japan that was very fringe, that was uh, devoted to erasing the impact of Western diet and you know refined sugars, refined flowers, um, you know, sort of tropical sweets, things like that, and he he, he combined it with this sort of um, slapdash interpretation of traditional Chinese medicine and ideas around yin and yang and the body and how they needed to be uh, balanced out in the body and and that would have ripple effects you know out in, in, in the universe and he's he traveled around the world and and ended up you know having a small following in new york and and california and um these folks uh had this very austere diet that was focused on brown rice they had um they had what what they they recommended what they call a 10-day a, a brown rice fast, where you would eat nothing but brown rice and a little bit of misos, miso soup just for a little bit of liquid. And if you did that for 10 days, it would sort of change all of the atoms in your body and balance out the yin and yang. And then you, you know, if you adopted this a slightly, a slightly less austere diet. It was all vegetables and maybe a little fish and brown rice. Um, you you would sort of bring your body into you know alignment with the universe, and so this diet um, sort of existed on the fringes in the early '60s. But then the counterculture kids gravitated toward it because a it had had this sort of world changing aspect to it. It was and it had it had these spiritual overtones, but also it it kind of um, melded with this critique they were developing about you know, industrial food and about you know refined flours, refined sugars, you know plastic food on, found in bounding cans and and so uh, 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 these counterculture followers. And- Ended up becoming macrobiotic and then sort of preaching the gospel of this new diet um, across the country, particularly in Boston and, and California. And it ended up becoming the template for the hippie food, what I call hippie food, that debate, developed later on in the
0: 1970s. Weren't people like dying from it? Were it like malnutrition? Yeah.
1: In the early days, because because the counterculture kids were so, you know, they, they took this idea of a brown rice fast and they rolled hard with it. Um, and so it, it kind of activated some folks, um, uh, you know, food. Um, it activated some folks. Uh, what's the term food? Um, Neither. <laughs> I'll need to redo this. Um, it's okay. What's the term like uh, food? Dis- Function dysfunctional food eating. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, it, you know, for, for the counterculture kids, like uh, it activated some of their disordered eating patterns. And so there were folks who became um, strict macrobiotic, you know, which was really, you know, anorexic, and they become, became so malnourished because their diet was so narrow. Um, and low in protein probably that they, um, they developed some folks developed scurvy, uh, because vitamin C sugar, you know, citrus fruits were too yin. Um, some people died from malnutrition. It really took uh, a couple of the followers of Georgia Sawa to sort of step back and say, Hey, okay. Whoa. Um, (laughs) yeah you know, loosen up just a little bit. And here's a, here's a standard macrobiotic diet that you need to follow it. And, you know, this Brown rice fasting,
0: not so much. The research in the book, the bibliography is, is extensive. What was it like doing the research for this?
1: Uh, well, every step of it was a delight. I mean, really, I, I don't think I have and will ever embark on a project as um, fun as this one, but uh, because I wanted to tell all of these stories through, I, I, so I wanted to talk about this history through the personal stories of people involved. Um, I wanted to combine oral history and uh, document history. And so I looked at sort of secondary sources um, to get a sense of, you know, people analyzing what had happened for background. Um, but really, it was a combination of primary sources. In fact, a lot of underground newspapers, the alt-weeklies that I ended up working for um, uh, com- combined, that were sort of, that I would weave together with interviews of folks um, to put together this, this story and, and a lot of cookbooks as well. And so what I would do with each chapter was try and locate a community with a really interesting story around the topic I was looking at. And, and I wanted them to be all over the country because I really, it was a hard sell when I was selling the book Um, to New York, who thought that, you know, oh, this is a Bay Area thing. This is a national story. And I was like, well, I grew up in Indiana eating this food. It's a national story. So it was really important for me to go to Minneapolis and Vermont and Austin, Texas and, you know, and San Francisco and Seattle and and paint this broader picture of a grassroots movement.
0: Now, your book concentrates on three types of food ideology, health food, fadism, ethical vegetarianism, and the post silent spring critique of industrialized food and farming. I referenced silent spring. That was a really huge book at the time that really kind of opened our eyes to food additives, pesticides and things like that. So I want to ask you in doing the research for this and writing this book, did anything kind of knock you over or kind of change your POV?
1: Yeah, a lot did. I mean, I think when I went into it, I had a sense that I wanted to talk about organic farmers and I wanted to talk to the food co-op movement. Um, I I didn't know that much about them, but I wanted to know more about where they came from. But I didn't have a sense of this health food movement and how far back it went in the American sort of how 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 far back it has uh, has been as sort of a countercultural element in American uh thinking around food but also like how kooky some of these ideas were that that sort of gave birth to foods that i took for granted like there's this sort of this this element of um uh willingness that americans have had to believe anybody with a good story about why we should be eating something whether it's a spiritual story whether it's about nutrition um and and if we if it captures our imagination we will follow it to the point of malnutrition and so like tracing all of these different threads all of these different movements whether it was macrobiotics or the Uh, 18th century vegetarianism of Sylvester Graham, who was kind of the first vegetarian prophet but was was telling us that we shouldn't eat, you know, refined wheat or meat because they would overexcite the senses and that we would sort of tumble into um, into illness because our bodies were so over sort of uh, inflamed by excitement. all of these different theories that have, like, that, that have existed below the surface, and they may have been mocked the entire time, but yet some, there were these kernels of wisdom that kind of popped up from them. And these foods that were adopted, um, you know, whether sprouts or granola, that, that then kind of filtered their way into the mainstream with no memory whatsoever of how weird the, the reason why we should be eating them
0: was. You had a chapter in the book that I really, really liked, um, and it, I liked it mostly because I really didn't have any idea about it, and I had friends and people that I talked to who touched on it, but this was the back-to-the-land organic farming movement of the 60s, which you talked about, which I think you kind of grew up and were part of. There were a lot of people that were moving to the south or the Midwest to buy farms, and go back to the land. I was talking to Crescent Dragon Wagon. She actually had gone to Arkansas to do that. And she wrote a book, I think a, a commune book. And then I talked to Susie Cigarette, um, an author who's written some books about Appalachian food. And she talked about how she was raised in that too. Can we talk about this a little bit? Cause I really think it's, a, it's just a hugely palpable part of the book. Mm-hmm.
1: So I knew I wanted to write about Back to the Landers cause I'd heard that term. But it wasn't until I started uh, doing some research uh, into folks who had done, uh, you know, there's some academic research into the uh, the scope and the impact of the backline movement that I realized how big it was. That, you know, starting in the late 1970s and all, uh, six, late 1960s and all through the 70s, there was a massive out migration of young people from cities and uh, smaller cities to rural areas it, it you can see it in the census reports like yeah. there's the, the 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 only and biggest spike in urban from uh, in growth of the urban populations you know in in a 150 year period so they these these kids these kids young adults um, were really caught up in the idea that a, there was a d- disillusionment um, with the politics of the time. The fact that their protesting and the their you know their activism um, was not having an effect on who was president, um, and and that the opposition was so fierce, they kind of re- they they decided that you know if we we if we can't change pol- you know the, the political landscape of America, we're going to create a new society. And and when the revolution happens, and the world, the country disintegrates, we will have created these new country, these new communities that will then be able to sustain the new, uh, better America. And so they moved into communes and they moved into homesteads and they built log cabins and, and they moved into areas where land was cheap and they could they could get, you know, they could get to and, and the, the areas that were emptying out. And they started, then they they got there and they were like, oh God, how do we feed ourselves? So these folks with all of these sort of Western tell, you know, they'd grown up on Westerns. They had this sort of fantasy of, uh, and and I should I should very uh, I should specify that almost all of these were white folks. This was a white yeah. American movement because rural America was still so hostile, you know, in, in 1970 to black folks and and folks of color that that it was this this sort of there was this like. We want to recapture the the great American past without, with you know, erasing the history of slavery and the impacts on you know uh, the the long term impacts on on Black American communities. So, these these white kids, uh, these white middle class kids, moved into these log cabins and communes, and then they tried to figure out how they were going to make a living and how they were even going to feed themselves, you know, by opting out of plastic America. And so they began uh, farming. And they began looking at organic farming, which was this, this theory that has kind of come out of Britain in the 1930s, 1940s. And there was this one magazine called uh, Organic farming, farming and Gardening by, um, published by the, the Rodale family, which now has the Rodale Institute. And they, it was all about you know, creating compost and you know, opting out of chemicals. And, and so they, they, they formed these networks, these rural networks of farmers, young farmers, who were devoted to using these principles and they ended up creating, um, teaching themselves how to farm, you know, interacting with the local farming communities and converting some of the old timers, and and creating what we know as the organic uh, agricultural marketplace today.
0: I think what you touched on with them getting along with the locals was the one thing that surprised me the most because I've lived in rural communities and I don't always find them to be very welcoming to outsiders, and in here talking about basically these young hippies moving in and kind of like being different and then welcoming that, that did that surprise you too?
1: Yeah, it took a while though. Like if you go, if you look at the, um, you know, in, in Vermont which is the, the community I looked at um, for just to sort of have to, you know anchor the story in, in a lived experience. Um, there were all these articles about the hippies are coming. The hippies are coming. There was a, a, a moral panic. um, that was spread by the newspapers about all of these you know they thought they were going to like bring the vd and um and and the drugs and and so and and certainly there were some very chaotic uh, hedonistic communities that formed um but the folks who lasted uh they began a lot of the folks you know these young strong Folks were moving to rural areas that had been emptied out. Where like a generation of young people had left for the cities for better economic opportunities, and so the older people who were left needed help, like you know, harvesting harvesting corn or rebuilding structures. And so, and you had these all these folks who wanted to make a little money learn from the old timers use they wanted they didn't want to use the big industrial equipment so they wanted to use the sort of the old fa- farming equipment and figure out how to do it so they developed these relationships with their neighbors that ended up being uh very supportive mutually supportive i think it took about you know it seems like it took about 10 years but then a lot of those communities really accepted the counterculture kids
0: i remember uh, there were some movies back in the 70s the billy jack movies with uh Tom McLaughlin, who became a senator later, and they always had these communes where the, outs- the, the locals would give the kids a hard time, you know, on their commune, and there'd always be a conflict, and Billy Jack would rescue the commune members. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you have a chapter that spans the beginnings of co-ops onward to modern Whole food stores, that was really heady reading because it wasn't always easy and sometimes there's a lot of acrimony and strife can we talk about this a little bit hmm
1: so I grew up uh, in my we, we had a small commune in, in Elkhart Indiana and that's sort of where I grew up after school um, with my mom weighing cheese and you know hanging out um, among the bins of oat and oats and you know unbleached wheat and so I knew I wanted to write about the co- the co-ops um, and uh, I, the co-ops ended up being the mechanism by which I was looking. I was looking for the story of how hippie food made it out into the mainstream, and the co-ops were the mechanism by which that ended up happening. Um, because all of these little buying clubs uh, and tiny operations, where they were going to, uh, where they wanted to secure all of these like un, these whole foods, these very strange foods. Um, they, they erupted all over. Like more, I think, more than five thousand across the country, um, and 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 uh, all of them were. Most of them were organized around anti-capitalist uh, ideals. So the the idea was: not only are we creating a new society, we're creating a new economy, and this count. This economy is going to be people-centered, food for people, not for profit. Uh, it wasn't going to be. Um, Uh, you know, it wasn't going to be, you know, organized on making anybody rich. And so you had all of these folks who gathered together. They committed a little bit of money financially. They had to put in labor, free labor, and they would maintain these, these sort of ramshackle stores where they would have like all of the, everything sold in bulk. And they were, um, uh, what happened at that time though, was that they, uh, well, A, they they were they were organized by the people. They belonged to the people, and so any kind of strife that uh, arose in the communities was was going to get hashed out in all of these very long meetings. And whether that was talking about whether bananas were ethical to, you know, to stock, or whether that meant that you know they were uh, the entire focus of the of of the co-op was was like too uh off-putting to you know the act to the working class it was too focused on the counterculture and so we needed to really rethink what we were doing and and so these these communities it could it could get there were co-op wars even in minnesota over sort of political ideology um but they also sprung up at a time at the last great uh, period of food inflation in the United States in the, the mid 1970s. And so people were looking for ways to eat more cheaply. And here were these co-ops run by volunteers where they could keep the food prices down. And so you have brought in a lot of people who did not really want to have much to do with long haired smelly hippie types um, to shop for all of these foods and discovered all of these new foods that they had never heard of before.
0: So. Um. I want to ask you, uh, what was the, what has been some of the responses you've gotten from the book, from the people that are in the book? Because you, you've written about a lot of people. Have you gotten any feedback from anybody that, that that's one of the people mentioned? Uh,
1: the only person, there was only one person who complained, and and he uh, his, his name is Samuel Kamen. He was the founder of. Um, He's probably, he was in his 80s when I talked to him. He's the founder of Stony Brook Farms, Stony yeah. Field, Stonyfield, Stonyfield Farms, Sorry, um, yogurt uh, and, and an organic pioneer in, in 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 Vermont. And and he was angry at me because I I titled the book Hippie Food because he thought that hippies were mis- that was a mischaracterization of his generation or the the people he worked with. Um, but I think there was a, a for a lot of baby boomers I talked to a lot of counterculture baby boomers. I would call up all these people and be like i have this odd question i talked to this guy who says that you know something about this little commune that you lived in or you were part of this restaurant and it was this way of it was it was this thing that they had done in the 70s and had forgotten about and here was somebody who was helping them make sense of of what this movement was and saying look at how much influence you had on the way we eat today like look at the change that your bizarre, not very tasty diet in 1970 has wrought on the entire American diet. So I think a lot of baby boomers appreciated that. Um, And I also hear a lot of folks from my generation who were raised on this, who had it forced upon us, who uh, who have, you know, and, and who, who had childhoods that were really marked by this difference from the, the mainstream because they were eating food that was really repellent to their, their peers and they were mocked for it. And, um, and they were like, oh my God, <laughs> this is, I remember this. And oh, this is where this came from. And for the same impulse that I had, which was this like, oh, this is my own history and I didn't know it.
0: So uh, Jonathan, I wanna ask you, um, what's next for you?
1: Uh, I'm figuring it out still. The pandemic, <laughs> the pandemic. Oh, yeah. You know, no. I um I write for uh, national publications. Um, uh, sometimes about food. Sometimes I've been writing uh here and there about AIDS uh, and and the impact of the AIDS AIDS on our generate on my generation as well. Um and uh and I'm doing this newsletter uh where I moved to Portland two years ago just right before the pandemic and um have uh, been find, trying to find ways to get to know a city without interacting with the city. And so I have been um, embarking on all these little projects to cook and eat my neighborhood. Um, and so some of that's foraging, some of that's gleaning, some of that's gardening. And and I just wanted a forum to write about all that stuff. So that's a uh, uh, place as a gift to the, the newsletter.
0: I'll put a link to that and the book on the bio. Jonathan, I really want to thank you for being on the program. And I want to thank you for your book because hippie food is a hell of a read. And I really recommend it to anybody listening today. Thank you. Well, thank you for being on the program.
1: Oh, it was a delight.
0: (laughs) That was my conversation with author Jonathan Kaufman. You can buy his book hippie food at all better bookstores and online. We have links to his website and book on the bio. On Monday, we'll be having British food writer, cookery book author, and recipe developer Catherine Phipps on the program to talk about her books Modern Pressure Cooking and the separate books Leaf, Citrus, and Chicken, respectively. She'll be on our program on Monday. On Friday, we'll be having Bay Area food and lifestyle photographer Erin Scott on our program to talk about her career. Follow the Well Seasoned Brand podcast on Spotify or iTunes and get notified when new episodes are released. You can subscribe to the podcast newsletter and get updates on my articles and more at the link in the bio. Our podcast theme song, Talk About Love, is sung by the band Kitty Cat Fan Club. Their label, Asian Man Records, has been given permission for its use of the song. You can check them out and order uh, records or t-shirts and check out other bands on the website at asianmanrecords.com link also in the bio until next week i hope you all have a really wonderful weekend and have some really wonderful things to cook see you then
1: i've been getting better better than you.